The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. We're going to be uh, thinking together now about the subject of topology in the New Testament. And I would like, first of all, to reflect on a passage in the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus says to the disciples, have you understood all these things? And they say to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been made a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder who brings forth out of his treasure things new and old. There Jesus is addressing the question, the understanding of the disciples. And he says that uh, those who do indeed understand his teaching, as the disciples believed that they did, those who do indeed understand his teaching uh, will be like uh, householders, will be like stewards, uh, who have a treasure to dispense. And that treasure contains things both new and old. And just as we begin to reflect on the subject of topology, uh, I would like to suggest that uh, the old things are made new in Christ and that uh, the new things in Jesus Christ are also old. The old is new in Christ. And we've been seeing that as we've looked at how the historical passages of the Old Testament point forward to Jesus Christ and how the Psalms witness of him and how the wisdom literature uh, points us to Jesus Christ. The renewal that is presented in the Old Testament is, of course, the coming of the kingdom of God, that impossible promise that we were considering that which man could not do in the hopelessness of his sinful situation is that which God will do. And because God will do it, there will be a glory beyond conceiving. The impossible fulfillment of the promise will be God's work. Remember the passage in Jeremiah 33, 3, where God says, Call on me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great things and difficult that thou knowest not. And uh, the word there, uh, difficult things, uh, really describes uh, like a treasure that would be hidden, uh, a fortified city, something inaccessible, something that uh, men uh, could not reach of themselves. But uh, God says uh, he will make them known. And we realize that this is nothing less than a new heaven and a new earth that God has promised. In Isaiah 65, verse 17, we have that promise, and it's picked up again in Revelation 21, verse 1. There will be a new Jerusalem. There will be a scene of feasting and of song and of rejoicing. And you may remember I was speaking to you about uh, Zechariah's visions and about the way in which he sees everything being transformed in the fulfillment 
of God's great day. When that kingdom comes, it will come by mighty deeds, by life from the dead. And Jesus comes with those deeds. He comes as the one who has the power to raise the dead. He comes speaking the living words of God's jubilee in the synagogue at Nazareth. Uh, Jesus says, today is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And the scripture that is fulfilled is Isaiah 61.1, the proclamation of the year of jubilee, uh, the year acceptable year of God's favor, uh, the year when God's great blessing is poured out. So it is in the coming of the kingdom that everything is renewed. You know, there's uh, often a great deal of confusion about the teaching of the Bible uh, regarding the kingdom. Uh, I was uh, talking to a young man this morning who was uh, expressing some difficulties with aspects of Reformed theology uh, because he said that uh, raised as he was in a dispensational background, uh, he had seen the impact on people of a dispensational eschatology, the uh, impact of uh, discussing uh, the events of the day against the background of uh, prophetic uh, scriptures. Uh, but you see, in the, in the word of God, the great future that comes is a future that comes in Jesus Christ. And if we're going to understand the kingdom, we must keep our eyes on the king. Uh, we are confused sometimes to think of the kingdom as being future and yet also present. And this is what Reformed theology has emphasized, not to speak of the kingdom as exclusively future, as dispensational theology would have us do, but to recognize that the kingdom is already present. The throne of David is not vacant. Uh, Jesus Christ is on it. To be sure, it's now the throne of glory. But you may remember I was pointing out that if God does more than he promises, he hasn't done less. And the son of David is today seated at the right hand of God Almighty. So he's king of kings and lord of lords. And the book of Revelation tells us of the praises that are being uh, sung to his name. Uh, Jesus Christ is the king. And to understand the uh, kingdom, we understand the king. Uh, Jesus comes and uh, he casts out devils uh, by uh, the power of God, by the finger of God. And he says, if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then is the kingdom of God come uh, upon you. The kingdom is present with the coming of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is going to come again. And when he comes again, then the kingdom will come again. And there will be the fullness of the revelation of his power uh, in judgment and majesty and glory. And so Jesus can speak the living words of fulfillment in the synagogue of Nazareth. Uh, he can say, today is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Uh, the acceptable year of the Lord had already begun. The great final year of Jubilee already started with the coming of Jesus Christ, even though the consummation is yet to come. And you see, all of this is tremendously important for our understanding of topology because we have to recognize that Jesus Christ comes as the fulfillment of that which was spoken in the Old Testament. So the coming of the kingdom, the renewal that the kingdom brings, is with the coming of the Lord. 
So the new treasure that the disciples can uh, give, you will be like householders bringing forth things new and old. The new treasures are the treasures in Christ, uh, that we might hear him who is the wisdom of God. Uh, that we might recognize that the words that he speaks are spirit and are life, and the fulfillment of the promises are heard in the very words of Jesus Christ. So there is a new treasure in Christ and a new creation in Christ. Uh, we are called to trust him because he is the new man. Uh, he is the second Adam. Uh, he uses that mysterious title, Son of Man, and, of course, there's a reference there to the passage in the seventh chapter of Daniel, which describes the beast coming up out of the sea, uh, the image of the world empires. And then, in contrast to the beast from the sea, there is the man who comes from heaven. Uh, there is uh, the one who is like unto a son of man, who comes in the clouds of heaven and who's given uh, a seat at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. And so Jesus Christ comes as the Son of Man in that sense, uh, the majestic figure from the prophecy of Daniel. It's interesting, however, that that title, the Son of the Man, uh, has uh, another implication in it. Uh, that is to say, it points us back to Adam. Uh, Adam is the man. Uh, and Jesus Christ is Ben Adam. He is uh, the son of the man because he comes as the one who is the second Adam. And that's why Paul speaks of Christ as he does in 1 Corinthians 15:45. Christ then is the new man. Christ is the creator, as we're reminded in the first chapter of John. Uh, all things uh, were made by him. And uh, as the creator, he comes uh, to make anew the creation of God. Uh, by his redemption, by the new covenant in his blood, uh, his victory will usher in a new order. Uh, he sees Satan uh, falling as lightning from heaven. Uh, there comes in the, the new creation in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we are already new creatures. We are already those who taste of the glory of that which is to come. So there is the renewal that is established by the coming of the Lord, uh, the new creation in Jesus Christ. And of course, that's a new life in Christ. Uh, corporately, uh, we are uh, together in him and have uh, the life of Jesus Christ uh, in us. And we are made to be the new people of God, uh, the new Israel. Uh, you know, in Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus says to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, uh, he uses the, uh, the term there in Matthew's gospel, of course, is ecclesia. Uh, the background is the Old Testament term, kahal, uh, which described the gathering of the people of God, uh, particularly at Mount Sinai. And uh, the people of God are called the kahal, the ecclesia. Jesus isn't using a new term that would be unknown to the disciples when he says church, uh, whatever the particular word uh, may have been that he used in um, Aramaic. Uh, he's using a term that is uh, understandable to them because uh, Israel is thought of as God's congregation, his people. But now, you see, he says, I will build my church. 
He comes to claim the people of God as his own. He says, uh, I am the vine and you are the branches. The vine, of course, is a symbol of Israel in the Old Testament. In uh, the fifth chapter of Isaiah, that beautiful um, uh, little story that's told about uh, God as uh, the vine dresser, keeping the vine and uh, caring for the vine. And Jesus Christ comes and says, I am the true vine, the real vine. And uh, we are the branches of the vine. So again, we see that which is old is made new in Jesus Christ. And just for a moment, let's reflect on uh, how that is true in the sense of Israel's being uh, the, uh, the church being the new Israel. In um, Ephesians, the second chapter, let me remind you again of that passage, beginning with verse 11. Wherefore remember that once you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that you were at that time, now notice this, you were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You see, those two terms are synonymous. You were separate from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you that once were far off are made near in the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both one and broke down the middle wall of partition, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments created in ordinance, contained in the ordinances, that he might create in himself of the two one new man so making peace and might reconcile them both in one body unto God through the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. You see how emphatic that is. Once there were two, now there's one. Uh, once you were Gentiles far off without hope, without God in the world, but now you are made one new man in Christ with the wall of partition broken down. What wall of partition? Why, of course, the wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. Uh, the wall of partition that... Uh, uh, stood in a very physical sense in the temple with the uh, uh, engraved uh, warning that any uh, Gentile who passed uh, that threshold did so at the price of his own blood. Uh, he would be killed if he went in there. Uh, and Paul says, uh, this wall of partition is broken down, the enmity is gone, and Jesus Christ has come to preach peace to you that were far off, to you Gentiles, and peace to those that were near, that is, to the Jews. Uh, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no more strangers and sojourners. Now notice the, the direct antithesis here. Uh, once uh, you were far off, once you were separate from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. You see, you were strangers, and now you're strangers no longer. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints. With what saints? Why, well, of course, with the people of God with the commonwealth of Israel. You were once without, and now you are within, and of the household of God, being built upon the foundation of the prophets, the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself 
being the chief cornerstone. You see how emphatic Paul is. There is one new people of God. Once uh, there were there were the Jews who had all the promises, who were in the commonwealth, who had the covenants, and there were the Gentiles who were outside, who had none of these things, but now that's all changed, where the Gentiles have been brought in, they've been added to the commonwealth, they've been uh, added to the covenant, uh, all because they have been joined to Jesus Christ, and all these things are his. You know, incidentally, the circumcision controversy could never have occurred apart from this teaching of the New Testament, that the church is seen as the new Israel. For you see, suppose the Pharisees and the Judaizers who were criticizing the Apostle Paul, uh, suppose they had held to a dispensational conception uh, of uh, New Testament revelation, of the revelation as it is in Christ would they have objected to the fact that Paul did not circumcise Christians? Of course they wouldn't have objected. Why should he circumcise them? They weren't being brought into Israel. They were being brought into the church. And if the church and Israel are altogether distinct, uh, why, uh, there would be no objection to his bringing people into the church. It's a different outfit. Uh, you enter the church by baptism. You enter Israel by circumcision. So why should you circumcise anybody? Well, you say, uh, of course, uh, these Judaizers, they were mistaken. They didn't understand the theology. Uh, they, they, they were wrong. But how about the Apostle Paul? How did he answer them? Uh, suppose, uh, what answer would he have given? Uh, suppose the Apostle Paul had held to a dispensational viewpoint and uh, the, the Pharisees, the, the Judaizing party, uh, suppose uh, they had got it wrong and they wanted the Gentiles circumcised because they incorrectly supposed that um, the Gentiles were being added to Israel. <laughs> well, what could be easier than for the Apostle Paul to say to them, my brothers, I'm not betraying my own nation. I'm establishing the church. And uh, I, don't, uh, I don't circumcise Gentiles because Gentiles aren't being brought into the people of God of the Old Testament. Gentiles are being put together in a brand new organization, the Christian church. You see, he could have uh, ended all controversy in five minutes by making that sharp distinction between Israel and the church. But what did the Apostle Paul do? Why, as you see from this passage, he did the exact opposite. He said that uh, we are the circumcision. He, he not only insisted that uh, Christians uh, are the true circumcision, but he even called those who denied his doctrine about the unity of the people of God in Christ, he even called them the mutilated, the concision. You know how he wrote in uh, Philippians, the third chapter, uh, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, be beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. You see, it's very important to recognize 
that in the New Testament, the church is seen as the new Israel because the church is the new form of the people of God. It's the form of the people of God as they have been renewed by Jesus Christ. I will build my church. I will build my assembly. I will build my people of God. Uh, Jesus uh, gathers the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and he also brings in other sheep that are not of this fold, uh, so that there might be one flock and one shepherd. Uh, Jesus Christ does not discard, he does not jettison uh, the people of God, he gathers those who are the true uh, sheep of God. And, of course, this is also Paul's doctrine in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Uh, what about those that reject the, the gospel, Jews who reject the gospel? Uh, Paul uh, comes to the sad realization that they are not all Israel that are of Israel. So uh, what happens uh, if a Jew rejects Jesus Christ he is disavowing his own Israelite heritage. He's saying, I am no longer a, a true Jew. I am no longer a true Israelite. I have become reprobate. Now, this is not to say that God may not pursue even a reprobate people to bring them back. And indeed, that was Paul's hope in those very passages, that as the Jews saw Gentiles coming in, they too might come in. So you see how important this is to perceive that when the Lord comes, he makes all things new and together he forms us as the new people of God, the new Israel, uh, those who are the heir of all the promises of God given to us uh, in Jesus Christ. And both corporately and individually, uh, we are new, new creatures uh, in Christ. All right, the old is new in Christ. And the other side of it is that the new is old in Christ. Uh, that is to say, Jesus Christ comes to bring about the fulfillment. He comes to restore all things. You know, um, Peter in uh, Acts three twenty-one, as he preaches, says that Jesus Christ has gone to heaven until the time of the restoration of all things. You see, everything at last must be restored. And when we were considering the history of redemption, uh, we saw that the promises of God are not uh, in vain because God promises two things. He promises first that there will be a remnant and then second that there will be renewal. And you see, both of these things are ultimately accomplished in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the remnant. When the great cedar is cut down, as you read in Isaiah, the end of Isaiah 10, the beginning of Isaiah 11, when the great cedar is cut down, there comes a little shoot out of the uh, stump of the tree left in the ground, and that shoot becomes the ensign to which the nations are called. Jesus Christ himself ultimately is the true servant of God, the remnant, uh, the one in whom all things are uh, maintained. And then, of course, he's also the one in whom everything is restored. And so both the renewal and the restoration uh, are in Jesus Christ. Uh, God's promises are not vain because he saves a remnant. God promises, God's promises are not vain because there will be renewal. So the new in Christ is not something without precedent. The new in Christ 
is not, as it were, a whole new beginning that has no roots in the earlier work of God in redemption or in the earlier work of God in revelation. No, no, there's continuity. There's the deepest sort of continuity. And Jesus comes to restore, to fulfill. Uh, he comes as the one who was the creator in the first place. He is the one who was from the beginning. He is the logos. Uh, Christ, who is the omega, is also the alpha. He's the one from the beginning. And that which he restores is his own creation, which is good. Uh, Jesus Christ can rejoice in uh, the, the works of his Father's hand. And we are made in the image of God, and we are uh, created and restored by Jesus Christ. Um, the work of the Holy Spirit of Christ, a, a work of renewal, uh, is a work grounded in his work of creation. Sometimes, you know, when we discuss the gifts of the Spirit, uh, we uh, forget the fact that there are not only those special gifts that are given to uh, individuals for service, but there is also the fact that we are made new creatures. We are all new, <laughs> and it's God's own creation that is renewed. And let's not forget that uh, uh, not only in terms of the special gifts of the Spirit granted to us, but in terms of who we are, how we're made. Uh, we are the work of the Spirit, uh, the Creator's Spirit. And the Spirit of the new creation is the Spirit of the first creation. Uh, Jesus Christ, who by His Spirit from heaven gives us special gifts for His service, is the Christ who is the Logos, uh, whose Spirit moved upon the face of the waters in the original creation. And the fulfillment that we find in Christ is fulfillment to the glory of God, to the glory of God the Father, whose purpose is realized. And that purpose is a purpose that was from the beginning. That's so plain in all the life of Jesus Christ and everything that he says. He's always doing the Father's will. He's speaking the words that were given to him of the Father. He's doing the deeds that have been given to him of the Father. Um, he, when he faces the cross in John 12, uh, he says, uh, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And you know, that would be a, a very reasonable thing to say. Isn't that the cry of the psalmist in all those psalms of lamentation? Father, save me from this hour. But Jesus says, no, I won't pray. Save me from this hour. For for this cause came I unto this hour. You see, the Father has sent me for this very thing. So what will I say? And Jesus says, I will say this. Father, glorify thy name. You see, Jesus has come to fulfill the will of the Father. And he comes, uh, as we see in the beautiful prayer in the 17th chapter of John, he comes to redeem those that have been given to him by the Father, and he comes that he might send the Spirit. And he even says that it's better that he would go away so that the Spirit might come. And there, of course, Jesus isn't saying that the Spirit is better than he He's saying, rather, that it's better for the disciples that he should be so intimately present as he will be when he comes in the Spirit. For you see, he not only promises the coming of the Spirit, but he says, I do not leave you orphans, I come to you. So the coming of the Spirit is also the coming of Jesus Christ. He comes in the Spirit. It's also the coming of the Father, because Jesus says that uh, I and my Father will come and will dwell with you. 
So just as Jesus Christ is the, ta the true tabernacle, the dwelling of God with man, so we too are made to be tabernacles, temples of God, because by the Spirit Christ comes to dwell in us. Now, you see, that means that we who are his creatures are now restored in that very image in which we have been made. Uh, the, the covenant that is fulfilled in us is God's basic design from the beginning, that we should be his people and that he should be our God. And that's what's made ours in Jesus Christ. So it's the calling of man that is fulfilled. The sonship of the second Adam uh, is a sonship that is also ours, for we are made a new humanity in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, the, the Son of Man, is going to restore all things and return them to the Father. You know, that's uh, Paul's word, isn't it, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he describes the, the final wrap-up of the consummation, that uh, uh, the Son will have completed all the work that's been given to him and uh, return that work, that finished work, to the Father. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, well, that's to say, then, that Jesus, in finishing his work, is sealing all the promises of God from the Old Testament. He does these things that the scripture might be fulfilled, that the will of God might be accomplished. And you know, friends, uh, this was a, a tremendous realization for the disciples. The... Uh, Apostle Peter reflects on this very vividly in the first uh, epistle that he writes because, you see, for Peter, the crucifixion seemed to be the end of everything. Just think, he had denied Jesus, he had sworn with oaths and curses that he never knew him, and then uh, he sees his Lord taken away and crucified. And remember the disciples going back to Emmaus, uh, sadly saying we had hoped that it would be he that would redeem Israel. And of course, the reason Peter had said, Lord, don't go to the cross, the reason he had said, Lord, this shall never be to you, as he said in the 16th chapter of uh, Matthew, uh, the reason Peter spoke that way uh, be was because it seemed to him that it was a complete contradiction of everything that the Messiah was supposed to be and to do. And the Apostle Paul felt the same way. Uh, the Apostle Paul knew well uh, the Old Testament passage in Leviticus that says, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And so he knew that Jesus couldn't be the Messiah because he had died accursed. That, that's, uh, uh, that is Saul the Pharisee knew that. But after he met the living Lord on the road to Damascus, uh, he had to, of course, rethink that theology. And uh, when he rethought it, he came to the amazing understanding that uh, the very thing that seemed to prove that Jesus was not the Messiah was that which proved that he was the Messiah. That is to say, he was made a curse for us. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us in order that we might be made in him the righteousness of God. And so Paul writes in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that upon the Gentiles might come the blessing of Abraham in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It's interesting in that passage that 
Paul calls the blessing of Abraham the promise of the Spirit. The great blessing that God would bless all nations with through Abraham is the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so you see, uh, Jesus Christ comes that the scripture might be fulfilled. And Peter and Paul and all the disciples had to have a complete revolution in their understanding when they came to see that the very thing which appeared to be the denial and the frustration and the violation of all the purposes of God, that that very thing turned out to be the fulfillment of God's design from the very beginning. And so that's what you find as an amazing element running in Peter's preaching in the book of Acts. For he says, it's by the determinate counsel of God that you did by wicked hands take Jesus Christ and crucify him and slay him. So Peter recognizes that it's been God's purpose all along that the unthinkable death, the unthinkable murder of the Messiah was the very purpose of God because it is by this means that uh, he himself uh, bore our sins uh, in his own body uh, on the tree. Well, uh, you see how important it is to recognize then the deep connection between the old and the new. The fact that the new establishes the old. Not only is the old made new in Christ, but the new in Christ establishes the old because it fulfills the scripture. It establishes the covenant of God. Jesus says, uh, I have come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, Jesus transforms the law as he fulfills it, but he transforms it in terms of fulfillment. So all things are restored by Jesus Christ. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The purposes of God will be accomplished. The paradise of God, the new order of creation will be established. Jesus has already gone to prepare a place for us, and we are now made to be the people of God. Well, in Jesus Christ then, uh, as we minister the word of Christ, we are stewards of the things that are both old and new. And uh, we do so realizing this interconnection, that uh, the old that we present, we present as it is made new in Jesus Christ. And the new that we present, we present as grounded in the old of the purposes and the promises of God. Uh, Christians, you know, are neither radical nor conservative in the humanistic sense. Uh, we have a different approach to that which is new and old. We don't try to be conservative just to hold on to everything that's old, and we don't try to be innovative in the sense of going for every fad that's new, uh, because we see rather that we serve the Lord, who is from the beginning, the Alpha and the Omega of all the promises of God. We experience the newness of the Spirit of Christ, uh, as uh, the Spirit of Christ establishes uh, these new things in our hearts. But Jesus Christ, who sends the Spirit, is the one who is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is uh, the one who is from the beginning. 
Now, uh, as we go to look a little more closely at the, the structure of topology, uh, this is going to be central for our understanding. You see, topology is not a system of random symbolism. Uh, topology is not accidental relations of analogies, that here and there we find an analogical element. Uh, topology is systemic. Topology is grounded in this deep relationship between the old and the new covenant in Jesus Christ. It's grounded in the fact that God has one plan from the beginning and that his whole revelation is the unfolding of that plan. And therefore, the old does not anticipate the new in artificial ways or in superficial ways. The old anticipates the new in the fundamental structures of the relation of God and his people. And uh, this is what is central for topology, and this is what differentiates topology from mere rhetorical in, in interconnections or mere literalness, uh, but makes topology to be theologically structural. It is the unity of the covenant of grace. It is the unity of the design of God from the very beginning. And that unity, my friends, is found in Jesus Christ. Without him, it wouldn't exist. And therefore, all of it focuses in Jesus Christ, uh, who is uh, our Lord. Uh, the point being, of course, that all of these symbols, uh, including uh, the symbolical dimension or the metaphorical dimension to the history of God's revelation, all prepare us and point us forward to Jesus Christ, that we uh, do not have just a fictional storyline with which we can identify because common human experiences are described. But to the contrary, we have God's great work of redemption, which is preparing for the coming of Jesus Christ, and that there is a depth of revelation so that not only are the divinely appointed elements symbolical that uh, we find in the ceremonial law, but there is also the metaphorical aspect of the history itself, simply because uh, what is being pointed forward to uh, is already uh, being unfolded. Now, that means that the symbolizing is of tremendous value for our understanding and appreciation. There is a concreteness, there is an immediacy, there is a dynamic in the symbols of the Old Testament. We can describe the events of the Exodus. We can speak of uh, the difficulties of Israel in the wilderness, uh, their times of rebellion. We can consider the actual circumstances in which uh, Israel was rebelling against God and God told, God sent the venomous serpents among them and told uh, Moses to uh, make the serpent of brass and put it on his rod and lift it up. Uh, you see, it's true that as we describe that, uh, of course, we identify with it. 
we can uh, imagine ourselves being present there. We, it becomes vivid to us as we see that incident. Uh, but you see, uh, the whole incident is preparing us to understand better uh, the sense in which uh, Jesus Christ comes to be our Savior and is lifted up, uh, uh, made to be the accursed uh, thing for us. The, so these symbols assist our understanding and interpretation. And they have a prophetic reference because of the mystery of God's plan and the transcendence of his glory is expressed in these symbols so that we may uh, understand them better. Now, some of the symbols in the Old Testament are sacramental. That is to say, that which they symbolize is participation in redemption. The sacrifices of the Old Testament are a, are a sacramental symbolism. And th that symbolism is distinctive because sacramental symbolism uh, symbolizes uh, the actual participation by faith uh, of the believer in the salvation that God has given to us. Now that means that there is a sense then in which uh, one sacrament, an Old Testament sacrament, anticipates another, a New Testament sacrament. And you see, uh, uh, Peter in, the, um, in his uh, epistle uh, speaks about how the, the flood with, with its sign of judgment uh, becomes an anticipation of baptism. And now there he's speaking about the fulfillment in Jesus Christ, uh, which is applied to us, in which we participate sacramentally uh, uh, in baptism, uh, as being the fulfillment uh, of what we might think is very strange, the flood in the Old Testament. Uh, but of course, uh, we need to be reminded uh, that uh, circumcision in the Old Testament also had an aspect of judgment to it, uh, the cutting off, the shedding of blood, and uh, that uh, the water of uh, judgment in the Old Testament, going through the Red Sea, is like going through the waters of death, the Jordan being parted, the symbols of death being opened up, and uh, baptism, too, uh, being likened, as uh, Paul does liken it in 1 Corinthians 10, to passing through the Red Sea with Moses, uh, it becomes a symbol of uh, passing beyond the judgment of God. Uh, Meredith Klein has uh, uh, written very persuasively about the judgment aspect built into baptism. Uh, there is then a uh, sacramental symbolism uh, that uh, is distinctive because it symbolizes our participation in redemption. The uh, function of symbolism in New Testament revelation of course, is uh, in terms of fulfillment, in terms of reality. Uh, the temple image uh, continues to be used, but it's used now in terms of how that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in the temple of his body. The divine warfare figure is still continued, uh, but now uh, the uh, where God speaks of uh, in Isaiah 59, of putting on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the Apostle Paul now uses that language to describe the whole armor of God, the full panoply of God that's given to us. And uh, the figure uh, is continued. The Passover lamb, uh, 
that, that figure is continued. But you see, what has made the decisive difference is always the fact that in the coming of Christ, that which was the figurative has now been uh, fulfilled, is now the reality. The uh, symbolical principle, then, uh, is uh, that of fulfillment. And in saying this, I've been using the term type uh, continually in terms of the uh, what might be called horizontal typology. That is to say, the perspective re- reference in history, as from the Old Testament perspective, uh, the, uh, the type looks forward to the New Testament fulfillment. Now, as Davidson has pointed out in his book on topology, uh, we find in the New Testament also a horizontal topology. Uh, excuse me, a, a vertical topology. Uh, that's what, that is uh, characteristic of the book of Hebrews, uh, where we're told about a typological uh, reference uh, between the tabernacle in heaven, the real tabernacle, uh, and the tabernacle on earth. Uh, and we're told that the uh, tabernacle on earth was like in pattern to the true, so that the earthly tabernacle uh, conforms to the heavenly tabernacle. Now, it's interesting that there's a, a kind of ambiguity in the very uh, expression uh, tupos uh, type, uh, because it really means a uh, a die from which an image is, uh, is cast. It's a stamp that would stamp out an image. Uh, of course, our, our use of the word type for printing comes from that. Uh, so the type can describe even either that which is stamped out or that which does the stamping. So you have both type and antitype, and you get them used in uh, different ways in the Bible, uh, depending upon which viewpoint is presented. But fundamentally, as Davidson well points out, there are these uh, two overall approaches. Uh, Either the vertical, that you have the heavenly reality, uh, which is uh, uh, imaged on earth. Uh, uh, There's the heavenly pattern, uh, which uh, then is duplicated in the earthly uh, reality, the earthly... uh, uh, embodiment of that pattern. Uh, So you have that one uh, vertical approach of type and antitype. And then you have the horizontal in which uh, the figurative aspects of Old Testament revelation prepare us for the fullness uh, of fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Uh, But in either case, you see, uh, Christ is still central because uh, the heavenly realities are Uh, found in him and revealed by him and in the historical unfolding uh, the history of revelation prepares us uh, for uh, the coming of Jesus Christ. Now uh, having uh, summarized just a little bit uh, this uh, study in typology that we've been doing Uh, I'd like to make a few comments about the assignment, the the fact that um, you're being asked to prepare a Bible study or a sermon uh, in which uh, you will uh, employ the perspective of the New Testament interpreting the Old, the uh, basic typological structure of New Testament interpretation. 
I know that some members of the class have not uh, had courses in uh, sermon preparation or in the kind of uh, exegesis that uh, you would be doing for teaching and preaching. So I'd like to make a, a few suggestions and then mention a couple of things that I think are of particular importance uh, for uh, this exercise in this class. Uh, in the first place, uh, take the time uh, to work uh, thoroughly uh, into the uh, interpretation of the passage in its context. Uh, first of all, take account of uh, the passage in the book where it's found. Don't just uh, deal with one verse or two or even a chapter or two, but, but read through the context. In uh, many cases, certainly in the case of New Testament epistles, it would mean read through the book uh, because you're going to find uh, that you will discover more than you had expected in terms of tie-ins between the immediate passage and its broader context. So take account of the, the context as a whole. Uh, work through the language of the passage. Uh, if, uh, depending on your, your skill, and uh, if you've had uh, Greek and not Hebrew, then I'd ask you to take a New Testament passage uh, where an Old Testament passage is quoted or directly alluded to. Uh, if you've had both Greek and Hebrew, then... Uh, Fine, take an Old Testament passage and work with that. But uh, work through the language of the passage. And uh, take the key words in the passage, the major words in the passage, and do word studies on them. That may, You can use the uh, Englishman's Greek concordance or the Englishman's Hebrew concordance. Uh, if you need help in uh, identifying what the words of the original are, uh, get someone to help you. If you use the index of the Englishman's Hebrew concordance or the Englishman's Greek concordance, you can identify the word. It takes a little bit of work, but you can do it. Uh, get to find out what the word is, the main words of the text, identify them, and do a, uh, a study uh, where you look through the usage of that word. And pay a particular attention to way the, the way the word is used in the uh, author who is, uh, if um, you know who the author of the passage is, uh, then uh, how else, uh, how is that word used in the other writings of, say, the Apostle Paul or Peter or in the books of Moses? Uh, just how is the term used? Look at the immediate context. And, of course, uh, check out also the uh, dictionary meaning of uh, the word in uh, uh, Greek or Hebrew lexicon. Now, I recognize that there are many uh, dangers that come from the use of the concordance. Uh, one danger is to consume so much time in just looking at all the uses of the word that you exhaust uh, the time of your preparation. I just have to urge you to use a little common sense here, and that's why I like to see you use an Englishman's uh, Hebrew or Greek concordance, because then you can scan down it, it, the, the column. If it's a word that's often used, uh, you can look at the, the uh, brief quotations and often tell at a glance whether it's uh, likely to be at all significant for your text or not. 
So look through the word, and uh, and uh, if there's a problem that arises as to its meaning, uh, the uh, dictionary definition uh, uh, will be certainly a, a help to you because there you will find a survey of what scholars have found concerning the meaning of the word. But uh, do check its other uses. Now, I've said that there are traps, there are dangers, and one trap that you just spend too much time looking at every possible reference. Another trap is that you try to incorporate into your message everything that you learn from a survey like that, and you can't possibly do that. Uh, You've got to be selective. You're focusing on the meaning of the passage uh, that you are interpreting. And uh, I know that uh, in um, biblical exegesis here at Westminster, uh, many warnings are issued about the dangers of uh, the use of concordances because uh, a word has the meaning that it does in its specific context. And words don't mean, uh, a word does not mean in any particular context everything that it could conceivably mean. <laughs> and one of the worst abuses of this, I have no doubt you've, uh, had, you've been exposed to examples of, uh, where uh, a minister preaching a sermon uh, may uh, hit upon a word in the text Uh, He's discovered the possible meanings that it could have, and then he makes each possible meaning a point in his message, uh, as though the word could mean uh, and did mean all of the above uh, in the text uh, that he's presenting. And of course, uh, such an exercise may be uh, interesting and even informative as to the biblical use of the word, but it isn't going to help you very much to understand the passage that's being interpreted. And yet, in spite of these dangers, there is real value in the use of a concordance, and the value is often in this, that you will find, as you use a concordance, that you often come upon um, clusters of words that are used. Uh, You find that uh, more than one word in your passage is being used in another passage, so that there's a a close... uh, linking uh, that's going on. And, and it's very important to, um, to be aware of that. Uh, for example, uh, I recall when I was studying the passage in Exodus 15, uh, excuse me, in uh, Genesis 15, where uh, Abraham has the vision of the, 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 as it's called sometimes, the fiery torch uh, passing between the pieces of the divided sacrifice. And when you... Uh, look at the words that are used there in the concordance, uh, you discover to your surprise that words that can be translated furnace uh, are also words that are associated with uh, lightning at Sinai. You find out that uh, a number of the words used there are used also at Sinai. And as you check out the use of the words, it becomes apparent that what is being described in, in Genesis 15 is a, a theophanic appearance uh, that uh, the fire that's passing through the pieces uh, represents, symbolizes uh, the very presence of God himself. And then you learn from Jeremiah, uh, also by the use of the concordance or a marginal reference, uh, you learn from Jeremiah what passing through divided pieces mean. You see that it was an oath-taking ceremony that it's a self-maledictory oath. The man who passes between the divided pieces of an animal says, in effect, may I be so divided, and may the birds of the heaven come down and consume me. Remember, Abraham had to beat off the birds uh, as he had the 
the uh, animals divided. So God is saying, in effect, uh, uh, may I be uh, smitten and destroyed if I am unfaithful to my oath, to the promise that I make to Abraham. It's an astonishing uh, revelation in that passage. So where you find words used in uh, groups, uh, you also see passages that are related, where you might not have thought there was a relation at first, like the relation between Exodus 15 and the uh, uh, theophany at Sinai in Exodus. Uh, As you uh, work through the um, relation of Old and New Testament, you also have uh, some good possibilities. Um, If you haven't used the Abbott-Smith lexicon of the New Testament, uh, you uh, have still to be acquainted with a very helpful tool. Uh, The great advantage of the Abbott-Smith lexicon is that uh, in that book, you are always given the Hebrew word that is most often translated by the Greek word uh, that uh, you've looked up. That's uh, very handy, you see because it it enables you then to go back and check the Hebrew term that is more or less parallel to the Greek term that you're examining. Now, there are other ways of getting the the, uh, Hebrew background. Of course, if you use uh, Kittel's uh, tremendous uh, theological word book, uh, then uh, you are given the the Hebrew um, background in a separate, uh, often a separate article that's uh, first provided in in the Kittle uh, uh, book. Now, again, uh, the Kittle approach is often criticized as uh, uh, supposing that a word uh, carried everywhere the meaning that it carries anywhere. (laughs) And uh, yes, that's a legitimate criticism, but still, uh, Kittle does give you a mass of information that's very difficult to find anywhere else. Now, again, I know you're laboring under time constraints. Uh, You can't do thorough word studies on every word in the passage. And and yet, there are key words that have to be uh, examined. A further exercise that's very important is uh, having uh, identified the words and the meaning of the words and having seen how they're used elsewhere and using your marginal references or concordance to compare these things Um, Be sure to take time uh, to reflect on the the interweaving of meaning and interpretation that you discover. Um, uh, You know, there there is a a coherence of meaning often at more than one level. Uh, What has been going on in the preceding context and how does this context relate to it? And is there more than one structure of relation? Uh, Things like this uh, may sound abstract when I describe them, but uh, uh, they're they're well worth uh, giving attention to. You can uh, analyze the structure of an Old Testament narrative in its context, and you can develop a diagram of uh, the rhetorical structure. You can ask yourself, what principal themes are evident? And what minor themes are interwoven? Uh, What does the narrative contribute to the section in which it's found? Uh, What significance does it have for the epoch of redemptive history of which it is a part? How do the major themes carry forward into the New Testament? How are they fulfilled in Christ? 
And then you see, you can ask yourself, what other narratives in the Old Testament are similar to this narrative in structure or content? Then how does this narrative differ? You know, that's a principle you use all the time in biblical interpretation. What is most like this in the Bible? And how does this differ from what it's most like? Uh, you see, uh, if it's a miracle, how does it compare with other miracles? If it's a New Testament miracle, are there Old Testament miracles that are like it? Uh, and then how does it differ from what it's most like? The uh, Are there... New Testament narratives that are analogous in some way to the Old Testament narrative that you're looking at? Are there psalms that relate closely to the narrative? Does the narrative relate closely to wisdom literature or to prophetic passages? Now, there are many examples where you can see interrelations uh, of, uh, of this sort. Um, I just suggest you just take a look at Judges 15, 9 to 20, at 1 Kings 19, 1 to 18, at uh, Genesis 28, 10 to 22. So don't just be concerned with the key words, the, the, the critical terms, but be concerned with the, the overall structure and the relationships in, in, within that structure. Now, sometimes you'll come across a word that really has tremendous uh, theological meaning, like the term kesed that I mentioned in class. Well, a word like that, it's wise to look up in a theological dictionary. Uh, Colin Brown has one. Alan Richardson has one. Uh, and, of course, you might want then also to read the essay in, in Kittle on that particular term. Ask yourself the question, if there's a symbol in this passage, how does it go through the history of redemption and revelation? Think of the symbol like the rock, the oil of anointing, the, um, the dwelling that I mentioned earlier, the bread, uh, pilgrimage, wandering. And then consider the transformations of the symbol as the history of redemption unfolds. How does the New Testament use these symbols? How are they fulfilled uh, in Christ? So, uh, as you go through the, um, the passage, uh, be aware of the connections that it has. Now, as you've done this, uh, you've been making notes and working with the passage and keeping an eye on the amount of time you have available to do all this, I realize. Uh, but uh, then as you do it, um, you've, uh, you've begun to amass a, a fair amount of material. Now, that's where you've got to organize it. And... Uh, I recommend the method of organization that Jay Adams recommends, and you might look at some of his writings uh, on sermon organization. But uh, one of the good ways to do it is what he has called the scattergram method. That is to say, take the different, uh, write on cards or write out on a big sheet of paper, uh, some of the basic concepts that you've come up with. Uh, review your notes, look over what you've done, and uh, just lay them out, the little basic ideas that you have. And then look at them. Just uh, get them out in front of you. Spread cards out on a big table, if you've got a fair number of them, and, and look at them all. Uh, if you've got them on cards, then um, pick them up in, uh, in sections. What relates to what? Uh, put them together. Uh, 
Adams recommends using colored pencil, uh, marking pens. Uh, circle the ideas in yellow that are related to one another and the ideas in red that are related to one another and the ideas in blue that are related to one another. And uh, as you look at these different uh, uh, elements, begin to pull a, me- pull a, a message together that way. That is in terms of the interpretation of what it is uh, that you're seeing here. And then realize that the main task that you have to do at this point is to decide what the basic theme of the passage is. What's it about? Why did the passage start where it did and stop where it did? <laughs> well, of course, sometimes you, you just say, well, it's, uh, it's, uh, obviously it's a narrative, and that's where it starts, and that's where it stops. And it starts another story, next chapter. But what I'm talking about is, uh, what defines it as a unit? What makes it a unit? Why is it a text and not just a random collection of words? And you see, that's the theme. That's what it's about. And, and there's always a unity to a text. If it's not a unity, you haven't found the text. You're not forcing a unity on the text. You're finding the unity that's in the text. So you find the unity of the text and you state it. And this is what it's about. And then you realize that you're preparing a message to give to others. So you don't want to just say, this is what it's about. That would be necessary if you're going to give a lecture on the exegesis of the text, but that's not your job. So you don't just say, what's it about? Uh, You say, uh, what is its significance? (laughs) What does it mean? And there, of course, you're thinking about the needs of your hearers. And you want to keep that in view. And think concretely here. Uh, To whom might you give this Bible study? Where might you preach this sermon? Uh, Whom would you be seeking to help with it? And so look for a statement of the theme uh, that will uh, be applicable uh, to the needs of the, the people that you're addressing. Then you see, when you see what it's all about, and when you've classified the material then you're in shape to set up an outline. Then you have your theme and you develop your divisions. Now when you do that, you realize that every element in the sermon has to be related to the main theme. So the divisions all have to be subordinate to the theme and they all have to be coordinate with one another and taken together, they should cover the text adequately. Now, of course, it makes a lot of difference whether you're preaching on a very brief text or a very extended text as to what that coverage means. Uh, Obviously, uh, you wouldn't uh, say that a map of Pennsylvania was defective if it didn't indicate the location of Westminster Seminary. Uh, But uh, you might say that that a a map of uh, uh, the square mile in which... uh, Westminster is located would be defective if it didn't indicate where Westminster Seminary was. Well, that applies to uh, your teaching of, of the scripture. If, it's, uh, if you're preaching on the whole book of Ruth as one message, which is possible to do, uh, then obviously you can't cover in detail every verse by any means. It's the, it's the story of the book of Ruth. It's the subject of your, your uh, message and the main thrust of it. Uh, but if you're preaching on a a very brief text of a couple of verses, and then, of course, you have to give adequate attention to every term. So, structure is of great importance in preaching. And don't forget 
that the more emotive power that you would desire your message to have, uh, the more crisp your outline must be. And if I could use a little illustration here, you know how important it is when you tell a joke uh, to have it build up to the punchline. And nothing will destroy a joke better, uh, destroy a joke more, than random organization. <laughs> if you just happen to mention the punchline before you get to it, you, you've pretty effectively destroyed the, the humor. Well, uh, in, in, a, in a sermon, structure is important. And uh, you need uh, good tracks to run on if you're going to develop any speed in delivering the message, any uh, impact. And remember, too, that it has not only to be orderly, but it ought to move to a climax. You you ought to arrange the material in a way that builds up to a climax. Remember, you're not just rereading the text. You're not just retelling the story of the text, though you may wish to do that. But the important thing is uh, you are uh, interpreting the text. You are applying it. You're teaching it, you're preaching it, you're, you're giving it as a steward of things new and old, you're taking out of the treasury of scripture to give to the hearts and minds of your hearers. And therefore you think about their needs, you order the material in a way that will meet their needs, and in that way you can uh, build up uh, uh, the message. Well, I've made just a uh, a few of these uh, comments uh, and trust that they may be a little bit helpful to you as you uh, work on uh, preparing this message. Uh, Don't forget to work uh, prayerfully. Don't forget to be looking to the Lord to help you uh, understand better his word and uh, begin to realize the wonderful joy that can be a a lifetime of um, uh, great richness of seeing in all the scriptures that you're being pointed to Jesus Christ, who is uh, in view from uh, the very beginning and who is witness to to the very end. As uh, Peter says, you are redeemed with a precious blood as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, even the blood of Christ, who was foreknown indeed before the foundation of the world, but was manifested at the end of the times for your sake, who through him are believers in God that raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope might be in God.